you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke. And we're moving ahead to Luke chapter 3. While you're turning there, let me ask you this question. How'd it go last week with your assignment? Uh, we're here, uh, we gather together, this isn't entertainment, this is serious kingdom building stuff that we do, and, uh, and, and so this is sort of the kingdom schooling, so we teach and we, we, we confront and all of that, so I gave an assignment last week, uh, and I just want you to you know, be thinking about that, we're not going to have you fill out a form whether you did it or not or anything, but uh, you know, how did it go? I got a real cool testimony on a Friday night of a family that uh, took this, this assignment and applied it to their family and broke a stronghold, a cyclical stronghold. And most strongholds are cyclical, aren't they? Um, and it broke something that had been going on for years. Uh, the message was about uh, seeing, noticing when something's not working, getting the wisdom to see that it's not working, at least not working as well as it could work, and then seeking God's wisdom to apply to that situation to break that cycle. Um, and uh, so I hope you've been doing that. I hope you continue to do that. Notice when it's not working. Uh, insanity is, is doing the same thing over and over again and thinking you're going to have a different outcome. What God is telling us is be willing to change. Notice when it's not working and do different things, and he'll give you the wisdom to do that. What we're going to do now is we're turning into the chapter 3. Uh, Scott ventured in here a couple weeks ago. Then I pulled back last week and finished up chapter 2. But now we're going into chapter 3 full force. And uh, for the next several weeks... When I'm preaching, I'll be gone a few times, but when I'm here, uh, we're going to be focusing on the first 16 verses of Luke 3, and it centers on baptism. Now, it will be covering a lot of other issues, so don't stay away if you've already been baptized. It will cover a number of issues, but we're going to focus our attention around baptism, and it will all lead up to uh, two baptism services we're going to have this summer. On July 23rd and on August 20th, after this service, out in the, on the green, uh, we're going to have this, uh, a, a couple of big tubs, and we're going to baptize people. And, um, and if, as we're going through this series, uh, you feel God calling you to get baptized, uh, there's more information about this in the bulletin, but call in and register for this. I think in two weeks we'll start having tables to sign up for it. Uh, there's a class you take, and this is a great time to be baptized. We uh, also encourage small groups to be doing this, and we have people on a regular basis being baptized in small groups. But this is uh, another way of doing it, and it's a church-wide way of doing it. So we're looking at Luke chapter 3, and I'm going to read the first two verses and give a few comments, and then give the next two verses and give a few comments. And what we do here at Woodland Hills Church, if you're visiting, is that we, we uh, just basically study the Word. Sometimes it, the messages are more motivational and emotional. Other times they're more instructional, just information, background information that we need. Today's message is very much on that side. Uh, if you're visiting, you just should know that this is a church with a very high IQ. Uh, you know, we have different educational levels, but we're all very smart, and so you belong right here. And so we, we, we get into history, and we don't just look for an emotional buzz. We want to chew on the Word, pick it apart, and, and digest it. So that's what we're doing here this morning. So the book of Luke, chapter 3, and I'm reading from the TNIV version. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... When, when uh, Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip was tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Alabine, or Abilene. 
During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Hallelujah! Wasn't that just powerful? Man, that was exciting. You may be thinking, oh, by the way, do you know that you've already been prayed for today? I just want you to know that. We've got a prayer team that uh, prays for everybody who comes in here. They're praying as they were praying as the worship thing went on. They're praying as the sermon thing goes on. Got some people behind the stage. Got some people in the prayer room. Uh, got some people sprinkled throughout the auditorium. So you're being covered in prayer. That's kind of good to know, isn't it? All right. Now this passage here, amen, praise God. And feel free to join them as, you know, the Lord leads you. Just pray for the message. This, these passages probably seem about as boring as the Bible ever gets. Could anything be less preachable than uh, the facts about who was reigning when John the Baptist started preaching? But in fact, I think there's some very important information here for us to get. Uh, there's two things in particular that I want us to glean from these two verses. One has to do with what it tells us about Luke. The other one has to do with what it tells us about the kingdom. First, let's look at Luke. Luke gives us here the reign of Tiberius and Pontius Pilate and Herod and, and others. And he does it as a way of locating the time when the events that he's interested in took place. This was the standard way that ancient historians would locate events in time. They didn't have a standardized calendar like we do today. Our standardized calendar, which, which uh, starts time from the birth of Christ, that didn't come into being until the 6th century. And actually, it's a couple of years off. Uh, back in the ancient world, they didn't have that standardized calendar. So what they do is they would uh, uh, locate events according to the reign of different dignitaries. And, and you could tell when an event happened by when all those dignitaries, those power brokers, the governors and the, and the Caesars, when it overlapped. And if you do the math on this particular passage, you'll see that the event occurred either in 27 or 28 A.D. Now what it tells us about Luke is that Luke is a serious historian. Uh, there were other writers in the ancient world who gave stories. Um, they were sort of pseudo-histories, but they wouldn't take the care to locate the event precisely by talking about who was reigning where, uh, usually because they didn't know. It was just more of a once-upon-a-time thing. Those works have some history, but they're not really You can't trust them as much to give us reliable history. They didn't do their homework. But serious historians in the ancient world took the time to locate the events as precisely as they could according to who was reigning at the time. Luke does this, and it tells us that Luke is a serious historian. Everything about this passage, in fact, everything about Luke and everything about the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, confirms that Luke is a serious and, and uh, competent historian. Um, uh, many of the things he says in these two verses, as well as throughout the book of Luke and in the book of Acts, can be corroborated by other evidence. For example, uh, Josephus was a, a famous Jewish historian in the ancient world, a reliable, rather reliable historian, and he confirms much of the information that Luke gives here and elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. We also have archaeological confirmation of some of the information Luke's giving us here. For example, uh, it was... Uh, widely suspected that uh, the gospel authors made up the name Pilate, that there was no real Pilate who was the governor of, of Judea. And that's because skeptical scholars tend to work with the assumption that unless you have proof that the Bible's telling you the truth, you should reject it. 
They don't treat any other historical document with that much skepticism, but they do treat the Bible that way, which kind of bugs me, but that's a different sermon. So there was, the assumption was, since we had no confirmation that there was a Pilate, uh, a man named Pilate who was the governor of Judea, that, that the gospel authors made that up. But in 1961, we discovered an inscription that included uh, the name of, of uh, Pontius Pilate as the governor of, of, of Judea, thus confirming Luke and other gospel authors when they tell us that he was the one reigning at the time of, of Christ. We also discovered in 1990 an ossuary, which is a jar where they would collect bones after the body had been decomposed. Uh, Jews did that during the first century. And we have found an ossuary, a very elaborate one, which tells us it was a man, of a, a real dignity person, a high, high uh, repute. And it's, it's Joseph Caiaphas. And most scholars believe that these are the bones of Caiaphas, the high priest. Uh, they're, they're right in the vicinity of Jerusalem, and, and there's other evidence supporting that, that contention. So Luke proves himself to be a reliable, competent historian. The most impressive thing, however has to do with the titles that he gives to the people he records uh, here in these first two chapters. Tetrarch, Governor, Caesar. Throughout the book of Luke and throughout Acts, you'll find dozens and dozens of references to various titles of different offices. We read about the governor, the tetrarch, the prefect, the proconsul, the polytarch, and there's other titles that are given as well. Here's why that is significant. In the ancient Roman world, those titles changed frequently. Uh, the office that was called prefect one year could be called proconsul the next year, could be called governor the next year. Uh, the, the Romans were always changing things up, so the titles changed a lot. If someone was writing far removed in time from the events they're recording, it is likely, if not inevitable, that they would on occasion get the titles mixed up. And we have examples of that in other Roman historians. Tacitus, for example, uh, he, he mixes up some of the titles. He takes the, 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 the name of the title that was operative when he was writing, and he, he anachronistically applies it to the events that he's talking about. Uh, but back when, back when these events were happening, it was called something different. It's very hard to get these titles right. What's amazing is that so far as we can corroborate it with archaeology, Luke always gets the titles right which tells us that Luke was a very careful and competent historian. Uh, the guy who first noticed this and really drew attention to it in the early 20th century was a man named Sir William Ramsey. And he was a famous archaeologist. And he shared a lot of the skepticism towards Luke and the book of Acts that a lot of the scholars in those days and still yet today have towards these books. And what he argued was this. This totally changed his perception of, of Luke and, and the book of Acts. Because he said this, if Luke gets these titles right, where we'd most expect him to make a mistake, if he gets these ever-changing titles right, on what basis can we ever distrust anything else he says? And all that is to say this. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you have to believe that the gospel portrait of Jesus is fundamentally made up. It's wrong. It's mistaken. Jesus was not as the gospels say he was. My question to you is this. What do you do with this evidence? If Luke got this sort of detail right over and over and over again, on what basis are you going to argue that he got the basic facts about Jesus' life wrong? You see the logic of this whole thing? Um, and I would ask you to reconsider, to reconsider. 
even apart from saying that this is an inspired word or whatever, just on the basis of historical evidence, you've got all the reasons in the world to trust that these Gospels, and here we're talking about Luke in particular, they're giving you reliable history, which means that Jesus was as they portray him, which means that he is the Son of God, which means the rational thing to do is to bow your knee to him and confess him as Lord and Savior. Amen. I encourage you to consider that. Some people think they're too smart to believe in Jesus, and I'm thinking, you're not smart enough. Come on, you're smart enough. Look at the evidence. Follow the evidence. A second thing that these boring verses tell us, because they're not boring at all once you start cracking them open, is it tells us a lot about the kingdom. It tells us a lot about the kingdom of God, which is what all the Gospels are really all about. If you read other ancient historians, Tacitus, Suetonius, Josephus, and these other historians, they also talk about, uh, you know, Caesar and Pontius Pilate and, and, and other dignitaries, who was Tetrarch and Polytarch and all these other things. But that's all they talk about. Ancient historians focus all their attention on the big shots, on the power brokers, on the kings and the princes and the presidents, the governors, those, the Caesars. Because from the ancient world perspective, they're the ones that are important. They're the ones who change the world. No one pays much attention to the peasants, the peons. Uh, all of the writing is about the dignitaries. For Luke, Luke mentions these dignitaries, but he only does it to locate in time where the important activity happens, when the important activity happens, and the important activity isn't with the big shots. Um, he uses them simply as calendar props. And then he moves on to the important stuff. And the important stuff has to do with what's going on in the desert among peasants. What he's telling us, just by the way he treats these dignitaries, is that when God enters into the world, he flies right past the power brokers, the dignitaries, the big shots, the Caesars, and he lands in the desert where the important stuff is going on where people are turning to him and repenting. It tells us, like every other detail we've been studying the last six months in this inauguration of the kingdom, there's a revolution that's coming into the world that we're reading about here in the first chapters of, of Luke. And all the details about the beginnings of this revolution tell us a lot about the weird, weird, wild nature of this revolution. It speaks volumes about the revolution. Because what it tells us is that from a kingdom perspective, the important activity isn't in what T Tiberius Caesar is doing, or what Pontius Pilate is doing, or what Herod is doing, or what Philip is doing. The important activity is what's going on in the wilderness. It's what's going on among the peasants. It's what's going on where people are committing their life, surrendering their life to God. And what it tells us is that from a kingdom perspective, as this revolution is beginning to take hold of the world that we're reading about here in Luke, the future of the world doesn't lie in the hands of the power brokers. The future of the world doesn't lie in the hands of, of Caesar, and it's not about what Pilate's going to do or Herod's going to do or what Philip's going to do. Uh, the future of the world doesn't lie in what the Democratic Party or the Republican Party is going to do. And it doesn't lie in what the communists are going to do or what this nation or that nation is going to do or what this military or that military is going to do. The future of the world lies in the hands of Jesus Christ and the revolution that he birthed with his life and death. Amen. The future of the world lies... And those people in the wilderness who are repenting and turning their life over to God, the future of the world lies 
And the power of God working through people who have committed their life to Christ to impact one life at a time. The only reason Luke even mentions uh, these, these, these dignitaries is as calendar props to mark the slow advance, the quiet, slow advance of the kingdom of God. It's not in laws and leaders and policies and programs and nations and militaries uh, that, that the, the world's going to be saved or, or that are going to win the day. It's in every Christ-like act of kingdom service that the people of God engage in. And so all of that is to remind us, or maybe some are hearing it for the first time, kingdom people, don't be overly invested in what the kings and the princes and the presidents and the militaries of the world do. The salvation of the world doesn't lie there. Kingdom people, keep your primary focus on what you are called to do 24-7 as you live out the radical call of the kingdom, as God uses you to one person at a time advance the kingdom in this world. And kingdom people, don't get too bent out of shape at what the kings and the princes and the presidents and the nations and the militaries of this world do. Uh, God, God, God is God. He's the king of kings. Our job is just to walk in humble obedience, replicating the love of Calvary to all people at all time. Never forget the words of Paul, so vitally important in our heavily politicized age. The words of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2. I love this passage. That's why I quote it so much. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. Rather, they try to please their commanding officer. What kings and princes and presidents do, it's, it's about civilian affairs. It's about you know, tweaking this present world order. But you, kingdom person, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, you are enlisted by a different king. He's the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And you belong to a different kingdom. You're a citizen of a different kingdom, and you've got an entirely different battle to fight. It's not a battle against flesh and blood. Those are the ones that we're called to save, no ifs, ands, or buts. We fight a battle that is about principalities and powers, and the main way we fight it is by our radical obedience in living out the radical call of this radical kingdom uh, to love all people at all times and all situations, no ifs, ands, or buts. And if what I said just uh, disturbed you or confused you, I encourage you to get my book, Myth of a Christian Nation. And there's my plug. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> let's go to the next two verses. See, there's a lot of important stuff in those two boring verses. Here's the next two verses. John went into all the country around Jordan. Now, that's interesting. Uh, you'll, you'll see later on why that's significant. Preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. What an interesting phrase. The book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Okay, now we're doing a Bible study here. So keep your thinking caps on. And one of the ways you just crack open the nuggets of the word is by asking questions. The question is, what is this all about? Who is this John character? What is he doing out there? What is this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Even more odd, Luke explains what John's doing by quoting this verse that comes from Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Well, what does that passage have to do with what John is doing? John was baptizing for repentance as it is written, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. What is going on here? Who is this strange figure of John the Baptist? So we're going to give some historical background here. First, the word repentance. The, he's, he's, he's doing this baptism of repentance. The word repentance is the word metanoia. And the literal meaning of it is simply to turn, to turn around. 
A lot of people today think that the word repentance means saying, I'm sorry. Uh, and whether or not you turn around or not. I've had people who say, well, you know, I, I'm just going to sin now, and I'll ask for forgiveness later on. Uh, but see, the baptism isn't about a magical saying, I'm sorry. It's about a real turn, a real turn, an actual turn in your life. You, you are going in one direction, and you turn around. Repentance is, is also not a, about some emotion you have. Some people say, are you truly repentant? Which means, do you feel remorseful, and are you crying? But, but this isn't an emotive word. It's a, it's a word about, it's a volitional word. It's a word about our decision. You decide to turn your life around. You may feel stuff, you may not. But it's about turning, okay? So he's, he's, uh, John is practicing a baptism of turning around. That's what the word repentance means. Now, what does the word baptism mean? The word baptism is baptizo. And the literal meaning of it is to dip or to immerse. It, the word is used... Uh, in different contexts that have nothing to do with the sacrament or the ordinance of baptism. For example, in John uh, 13, Jesus says this, It is to the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped, that's the word baptism, when I have baptized it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread in the cup, baptizo, baptizing the, the piece of bread in the cup, he gave it to Judas Iscariot. So the word simply means to dip. So, what, what Luke says John is doing is, John was out dipping for a turning around. That's what baptism of repentance means. He's dipping for a turnaround. Now, what does that mean? And why is John doing it? And what does it have to do with this prophecy that, that, that Luke cites? What's amazing here is that Luke doesn't explain what the dipping for a turning around was all about. He just mentions it as a matter of course. Oh yeah, John the Baptist was out there dipping people in the wilderness for a turnaround. He doesn't explain it, which tells us that he didn't think he had to explain it, which tells us that his, he, he assumed his original audience would know what this wilderness dipping for a turnaround was all about, which means that I, as a teacher, have to try to get into what the first century people were thinking and bring us on board so we can know what they know, because we obviously don't know what they know, otherwise we'd know what this dipping for a turnaround was all about, but we don't. So what do they know? I'm going to give a little historical background. This give me another five minutes on, on, on uh, uh, dealing with hist history stuff. It's important stuff to understand the full meaning of what's going on here. Two pieces of history. Number one, uh, first of all, you need to be aware of what are called ceremonial washings in the Old Testament. You find, uh, especially in the book of Leviticus and Numbers, that uh, at different times the Lord prescribed ceremonial washings. He commanded people to wash, to take a bath. Uh, before the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, they, he had to wash himself. Uh, after certain sorts of sins that would defile the person, uh, the people had to separate themselves from the community of Israel, and they had to wash themselves before they could become part of the community again. These are called ceremonial washings. They weren't meant, no one understood them to be sort of literal washings away of sin, but rather they symbolized that the person had repented or the person had consecrated their life to God and now they were ready to re-enter the community of God's people. So that's, that, that's the earliest background to what came to be known as baptism. A second, and I think very interesting historical fact, concern what are sometimes called Jordanian baptism groups. The most famous of these that some of you will have heard of is this group called the Essenes. I want to talk about these, uh, a few points here. First, around the 2nd century B.C., what we know from a wide variety of sources 
is that the Jews begin to take the ceremonial washings uh, that are in the Old Testament and they begin to apply them all over the place. Uh, we have records of people who would baptize themselves, take a bath daily because they, 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 they realize that they probably sin daily and so they wash themselves daily to reconsecrate themselves to God. Uh, we find that they also begin to consecrate, baptize all sorts of objects. Um, they, they would consecrate cups and utensils to the Lord before they would eat, and so they would dunk them in water. Not to get them clean, because they didn't even know about germs back then, but they did it as an act of consecration. Um, and, and they were doing that all over the place. Jesus talks about that in, in Mark chapter 7, where he says you guys are too caught up in this tradition where you think you've got to dunk all your utensils and all that other stuff, but your heart's unclean. Uh, but it was a widespread tradition. Also at this time, around the time of Christ, they began to wash new converts to Judaism. When, when a Gentile would convert to Judaism, they would have them take a bath, a ceremonial washing, as a way of symbolizing that they are receiving God's forgiveness to wash away their sins, and they're now consecrating themselves to God, and they're joining the people of God. Okay, so all that's kind of background. A second thing that began to happen in the second century is that really quite all of a sudden, around 200 A.D., all over the place, we find evidence that people are beginning to sense that something is about to happen. Uh, the Lord is going to come back. They didn't have the understanding that we have today that the Lord was going to come first in a humble mode and then come in victorious mode. They thought the victorious mode would come first. And so they were looking for the Messiah to come back and, and kick some Roman behind and reestablish Israel as a, as a sovereign nation. But they began to sense, rightly, that something's in the air uh, and that the Lord is going to return very, very, very soon. And it's amazing because it happens all over the place at the same time. There's something in the air, starting around 200 B.C. Some of these people began to look at the Old Testament for prophecies about this coming of the Lord. And many of them hit on the verse that was quoted in the passage that we read earlier in Luke 3. It comes out of Isaiah 40, and it says this, A voice of one calling, In the wilderness, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And we know from historical records a number of groups took this and said, oh, the Lord is telling us to move out into the wilderness because that's where we're supposed to prepare for the Lord to come back. And he thought the, literally the Lord would come back in the wilderness and he's looking for a people who would greet him there. And they were, in fact, largely right, weren't they? Um, so there's these groups of people that move out into the wilderness. Um, the most famous of these groups is the, the Essenes. They were the ones who collected this library that we discovered in 1947. It's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And some of you know about the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is the group that, that uh, Dan Brown mistakenly, in the Da Vinci Code, said wrote the original Gospels of Jesus, even though this library dates 100 years before the time of Christ and never mentions Christ. Dan Brown didn't do his homework, but that's another sermon. Quick, get me off track. Uh, but... So they, 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 there's this group that was, and they moved out into the wilderness, this Jordan Re River, uh, or, or uh, this area around the Jordan River. Now, they took this end times awareness and they combined it with this ceremonial washing and gave this ceremonial washing a new twist. As they looked at the Old Testament for prophecies about what's going to happen when the Lord came back, they noticed a number of verses where the Lord says, when I return, I'm going to wash my people. For example, it says in Zechariah 13, On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David, 
and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and iniquity. And so these groups, and we know primarily about the Essenes because we've got their writings, they now understood the ceremonial washing to be this. It is a way of saying, I'm turning around from my sin. It's a way of saying, I'm consecrating myself to God. But it's also a way of, a way of saying, I'm being washed with that end-time washing that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And it was a way of saying, I'm now joining the community of the end times people. That's what the ceremonial washing meant. John the Baptist, we don't know if he came out of the Essenes or came out of one of these other Jordanian baptism groups. Many scholars believe that he did. But whether he did or not, it's very clear that he's preaching the same message. He's pre to, say, to preach the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as he's preparing a highway for our God in the wilderness. And it's not coincidental that Luke specifically mentions that he did it in the Jordan region where all these other groups are. Uh, he, what he's saying there is this. This is a declaration that you've turned, a declaration that you've been washed with the prophesied end times washing. It's a declaration that you are ready for the Lord's return and a declaration that you are joining the end times community. That's what this dipping for a turnaround is all about. And all of that is to say, this is why Luke doesn't have to explain that passage. Because everybody in his cultural context understands that John is, is part of that movement out in the wilderness. The dipping for a turnaround is a declaration that you're turning from your past to this new thing, and now you're making yourself ready with this end times washing and waiting for the Lord's return. John was simply the one, we've already read about in chapter 1, who God ordained among this movement that had been going on for two centuries out in the wilderness, God ordained that this guy here would be the real McCoy. And he would, in fact, point out the, 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 when Yahweh returns, he'll be the one to point him out, which, which we'll see later on is exactly what he did. Of course, the Messiah looked very different than most of the people were expecting because he didn't come with a sword in his hand. He came with a cross on his back. But John was the one who, who pointed him out. Now, let me close by, by giving two important, fundamental, foundational words about this dipping for a turnaround. This dipping for a turnaround. And we'll build on this in the weeks to come. When, by the way, when, when the New Testament practices baptism, we'll see in the weeks to come, it adds, it adds to this meaning but it never detracts from this meaning. This is part of what it means in the New Testament to be baptized. You're turning from the past to the new. You're entering, turning from the old age to the new age. You're joining the community of the end, the end times kingdom community. And you're being washed with the end times washing, which we now know flows from Calvary. Two important words about this, this dipping for a turnaround. Number one, the dipping for a turnaround is not magic. No Jew in the first century saw it as magic. Now, it's a fairly common view today, and in fact, it, it, it encroached in, in, in the church's theology starting around the second century. People began to get a magical view of, of baptism. The idea is that uh, baptism somehow literally washes away your sin. And in, in, in the theology of some people, regardless of where your heart is at, it's a magical thing that washes away your sin. So if you're baptized, you're saved, but if you're not baptized, you're damned. Baptism is sort of the prerequisite for salvation. And as I said, that view uh, became prevalent in the church very early on, starting in the second century. No Jew in the first century or before would have ever had that idea. In fact, if you read the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they've been, most of them have been translated now, especially a book called The Manual of Discipline, the Essenes 
which is one of those groups that are out there in the wilderness, they are very specific on making sure that people understand that the water doesn't magically wash away your sin. It's your heart. It's your repentant heart that, that causes God to wash away your sin. But if your heart is washed, you ought to show it by being washed in, in water. Um, so that wasn't, they didn't have a magical view of baptism. Now the most damaging thing about this idea that baptism literally washes away your sin is that if you think it through logically, it, it presupposes a view of God where God places technicalities over and above relationships. Um, the church I was first saved in believed this, that, that you have to be baptized, uh, otherwise your sins aren't forgiven, regardless of where your heart is at, regardless of anything else. In fact, in the church I was saved in, you had to be baptized with specific words said over you. It had to be in Jesus' name, not in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you had the name in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit said over you, then you're going to hell. Uh, and I used to be bothered by this because I would have this picture of God on Judgment Day. There's all these people standing before him. Many of them have loved, them, loved God all their life, served God all their life, but for various reasons never got baptized or at least didn't get baptized the right way. And so here they are loving God, and of course God loves them. God dies for them. But on Judgment Day, God says, oh, look, it, I know you love me and serve me, and I know I love you. I died for you. But there is this technicality. You, you didn't have the right words said over you when you were baptized, and so you got to go to hell. Bye-bye. You know, sorry. A rule is a rule is a rule, and, and you know, can't go making exceptions here. And that, see, that just seems to me so inconsistent with the character of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ went out of his way to blow that technicality, legalistic way of thinking out of the water. Uh, it's just not consistent with it. But it's kind of widespread out there. There's this magical right you have to do. Or for some people, it's a magical belief that saves you if you have it and damns you if you don't. I've had people tell me that I'm going to hell because I don't baptize the right way. I've been told I'm going to hell because I don't believe the right thing about predestination. I'm going to hell because my view of foreknowledge is screwed up. I'm going to hell because I don't have the right view of the end times. I'm going to hell because I don't have the right view of the rapture. I'm going to hell because I don't have the right view of the tribulation. I'm going to hell because I don't have the right interpretation of Genesis 1 because the earth is only 10,000 years, don't you know? And if you don't believe that, then you're really not a Christian, so you're going to hell. I, you know, there's a lot of people going to hell if these folks are right. Uh, I'm really hoping God isn't as anal as these folks, and I'm not really worried about it. Uh, it's, look at, look at, doctrine is important. I believe that, and, and, and baptism, I'll say in a, word, a second here, is very important. But we've got to know that God is, first and foremost, a God of relationship. And it's... Here, what saves a person is, are they in their inner disposition, whatever their understanding is, are they in their inner disposition, one who is, is open to God or closed to God? That's really the fundamental issue of life. And salvation is about being open to God insofar as you can understand God. And damnation is being closed to God insofar as you understand God. Because I'll tell you what, you can have your rapture and early, early creation thing, you can be right on all the doctrines on the planet, and still, if your heart's closed to God, you're not saved. It's a heart issue, and God looks at the heart. And that's not to minimize the other stuff. It's just to say that God isn't... When you get to the pearly gates, there isn't going to be this theology test where if you get one wrong, you burn an eternal fire. It doesn't work like that. God's looking at, at, your, at your heart. So baptism is not magic, and there is no doctrine out there that is magic. Um, and, and, and we need to keep that orientation. The second thing, however, is this. That's not to say that baptism is unimportant. Uh, baptism is not merely an uh, optional, symbolic gesture. 
Now, see, there are some people who see the error of thinking that baptism is magic, and they go to this other extreme. Well, as long as your heart's in the right place, well, then baptism's not important at all. Um, it's, it's a kind of a nice thing. It's an optional thing. If you ever get around to it, it'd be a good idea. But there's no sense of importance or urgency to it. And I want to submit to you that that view is just as wrong as the first view. Baptism is a sign of the new covenant. Um, and God, throughout the Bible, if you're a serious Bible reader, you've noticed this, God takes covenantal signs very, very serious. They're never magical formula to get you saved, but they are very, very important. For example, circumcision. The main sign of the covenant in the Old Testament is circumcision. Paul is very clear that circumcision didn't save you, and the lack of circumcision didn't damn you. Uh, Being circumcised doesn't mean that you're a true Israelite, and lacking circumcision doesn't mean that you're not uh, part of the new Israel. Still, you read the Bible, God was, he got really mad at Moses in Exodus chapter 4 because he didn't circumcise his son. God is very, takes, takes the sign of the covenant very, very seriously. And so throughout the Bible, you find occasional times where, where, where the message is repent and be baptized. Turn around and be dipped. They go hand in hand. In fact, baptism in the, in the Bible is commanded. Uh, Peter, for example, is preaching on the day of Pentecost. Uh, not the day of Pentecost, after the day of Pentecost, he's preaching to the Gentiles. And um, uh, the first Gentiles to really become part of the kingdom movement. And as he's preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on these Gentiles. And then he says this. Surely, this is the Apostle Peter, surely no one can stand in the way of the newly converted, these newly converted Gentiles being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered them... He ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He ordered that. He didn't say, hey, here's a nice option. This would be a nice symbolic gesture. No, it, it, he understood that if you've turned around in your heart and mind, then you need to show it by this dipping of repentance. So there's two, two things were commanded in the Bible, and I close with this. One is turn around. Turn around. Turn from your self-orientated way of life to a God-orientated way of life. And number two, if you are turned around, show it. Take on the sign of the covenant by being baptized. Would you close your eyes and just pray right now that God's will will be done. I'm going to very quickly ask two questions. Number one, is there anybody here who needs to turn around? And I'm not talking about do you feel a certain kind of emotion or anything. It's just do you know that your life orientation is off and you want to get it right. And this isn't a pledge that you're going to live perfect the rest of your life. None of us can pledge that. But it is a turning to say I'm going to live with the focus on God instead of me. And if there's anyone in this congregation, as every eye is closed and people are praying, that needs to turn around right now, would you just raise your hand? You and God. Amen. Wonderful. There's a number of people around. I see those hands. Between you, and you're just saying, God, I want to turn around. Father, I just pray, and we, uh, kingdom people, pray for these folks here that you will now seal that commitment. Help them to turn around in the core of their being, to be orientated towards you, to accept Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, to receive the washing, the end-time washing that flows from Calvary. Let it be done, Lord. Let it be done, Lord.